the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. A wall before them, no future, the holy place behind them in a place called dragged away. Maybe you have come to a point in your life where you feel dragged away, where you feel circumstances are so powerful on you, the grip of evil so strong that you're just kind of pulled along with it, dragged away. We are nearing the end of the Genesis series. We are up to a message entitled The Weaning of Isaac. You can find it online with the rest of the series at reachingyourheart.com. That's reachingyourheart.com. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast. I'll have information on how you can attend the worship service in person if you would like. You can also attend anytime online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Previous messages are archived there along with the actual live broadcast at the time it happens. And we hope that you'll join us. Again, remember that phone number. It's 888-244-HOPE. Here now is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentenko, with today's Reaching Your Heart. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you today that in Jesus Christ we have everything we need for life. That in Christ is life unborrowed, underived, and all the life we need when we struggle for meaning in this world. Thank you for giving it to us in Jesus our Savior. And Father, it's very likely that someone has come through these doors today who feels inside that hope is a chimera and they cannot find it, that somehow faith lies beyond a wall they cannot penetrate. And Lord, I just pray today that Jesus would come to them through the Holy Spirit. Your word would bring the living Christ today to the heart that seeks him. Thank you, Father, for being that kind of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Sarah was taught to believe in miracles, that miracles did not come easy for her. God had appeared to her at the door of Abraham's tent in the spring. Yes, it was the spring. The flowers were abloom. The signs of life were in the animal world. The birds had returned. It was the time of life. It was the season that would later become the time for the Passover. Two angels that evening ate unleavened bread with Lot before the sin of Sodom was removed from the earth by fire. Earlier the previous day, they had eaten with Sarah and Abraham. There was something special about this. It was a time with prophetic implications. The promise was clear for Sarah. The promise was personal for Sarah. It was spoken by God himself to her at the door as she hid behind her husband with her ear trying to hear every word that came from him. He said, I will surely return to you in the spring and Sarah your wife shall have a son literally I will return to you at the time of life and Sarah will have a son Sarah was standing behind 
her husband, the woman who had stood in front of him to protect his life in her elderly years had learned to stand behind him and to be a support to him. And as she stood behind him, she laughed because the time of life had passed for her. She laughed because the promise of life had left her behind, had cheated her. She laughed because God had promised Abraham a son. And now there he was standing at the door promising her a son. And it was just so hard to believe. She laughed because the way of women had ceased for her and time, yes, time, the time you notice when you look in the mirror, the time you notice when you take that anti-wrinkle cream and you apply it vigorously and it no longer works for you. The time had passed for her and she knew it. And now the promise that she would have a son. God was saying to Sarah, I will return to you, Sarah, at the time of life in the spring. And she laughed. Now, God said something to Sarah because of that. Verse 14 of Genesis 18. Is anything too hard for the Lord, Sarah? At the appointed time, I will return to you in the spring, and Sarah will have a son. It is possible to wait for the Lord so long that you come to feel that the word of the Lord is not for you. It is possible to plan and plant, to hope and grope for a future you can never attain on your own. It is possible to give up dreaming when your dreams fail you again and again and again where you feel it's somehow wrong to dream the impossible. It is possible to believe for a long time until time turns into your enemy and time turns your faith into fear and you discover that faith has a bite to it. Yes, time. Hope is a thing with wings that makes the soul to fly. And when hope's feathers are plucked out, The soul begins to die. For Sarah, the time of spring had come and gone. There was no life left in her hopes and dreams. She was a woman carried by hope and now dropped by hope that had lost its feathers, its ability to fly. At the appointed time, God said, I will return to you in the spring and Sarah shall have a son. The next day Sodom was destroyed and the fire fell from heaven and smoke rose like a furnace from the east and somehow the promise was overshadowed by this incredible apocalyptic judgment of God upon the wickedness of the land. It looked like God was very angry that season in the spring. At this point there's a transition in the life of Abraham. After meeting God at the tent of the door of his house, he slips south again toward Egypt. This is the last time he goes toward Egypt in his life. He had journeyed there earlier before, as you know. Egypt represents the love of the world and the love of pleasure combined. And there was a famine in the land. And he went to sojourn in Egypt. And sometimes when there is a famine in the church, a famine for hearing the word of God, when secular humanism or legalism or extreme liberalism has taken the place of the honest investigation of the scriptures, the living word is deprived of the church. I'll tell you what happens to the young people and sometimes the not so young people of the church. They start dabbling in the secular pleasures of our modern culture to get an emotional fix because they have not found food in the house of God. And dear heart, if you are tempted to find your meaning in front of a tube or in front of a silver screen or with the latest music coming through your MP3 player, 
and you don't have time for God in your Bible, you need to shift gears because you can always turn around, leave Egypt, go back to the promised land and get into God and get into his word. And that's why we're here this morning is to do just that. Egypt represents the love of the world and the love of pleasure combined. While it's true that Abraham loved God, he did, he had faith in God, it is also true at times he drifted. Have you ever drifted from God or is this just the case with our father Abraham? Of course you have and I have. And God calls his children who drifts to come home. He has a way of shepherding the soul back to the place where he can be found. And so God brings Abraham to his senses on the border of the promised land on his way to Egypt. In Genesis 20, the promise is in jeopardy all over again. At this point, you would think that Sarah's troubles would be far behind her. I mean, she's old enough to retire. She's old enough to settle in. She deserves that consistent social security check, that IRA that's as true as the ground beneath your feet. But no, not for her. She had been removed from her husband once before when Pharaoh, king of Egypt, cast his evil eyes onto her. And now Abraham, for who knows what reason, was going all the way to the border of Egypt again. What is wrong with Abraham running through her mind? Look at verse 1 of Genesis 20. From there... Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, which means the south or Egypt, and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Boy, this verse is loaded with meaning. The Bible says, from there, Abraham journeyed. From there is where Abraham met God. From there is where God promised Sarah she would have a son. From there is the place you would expect God to come back to, that God will return in the spring and she would have a son. From there is where she needed to be if God's word were to find her and be fulfilled. And yet they go from there to some place they do not belong. Kadesh in Hebrew means holy place. Shur means wall, camped between Kadesh and Shur, between the holy place and a wall which seems to prevent them from moving forward into a future they can have a hand on a grip on. Abraham comes to rest at a spot that is like a barrier between him and the future. The place was called Gerar. That sounds like a growl, doesn't it? Gerar. Now, Gerar has two possible meanings. It sounds like the Hebrew word that immediately precedes it. Abraham sojourned in Gerar. Sojourned is gur in Hebrew. A stranger is called a ger in Hebrew. However, in this case, Gerar is a wordplay and not a cognate. Gerar comes from the verb garar, which means to drag away. Gerar means dragged away. They sojourn in the place called dragged away. A wall before them, no future, the holy place behind them in a place called dragged away. Maybe you have come to a point in your life where you feel dragged away, where you feel circumstances are so powerful on you, the grip of evil so strong that you're just kind of pulled along with it, dragged away. Now, I have hooked some fish in my life, but I've hooked some that try to drag me in. And I, of course, try to drag them to the shore. Do you ever feel like sometimes the devil has this hook in you and you're just being dragged in and you don't know how to stand your ground? Proverbs 21, 7, the violence of the wicked will sweep them away. Here it is, Gerard, drag them away because they refuse to do what is just. 
For Sarah, Gerar is the place she will be dragged away for the last time. In Genesis 10, 19, Gerar is given as the utter extremity of the land of Canaan. It represents the last frontier post before you enter Egypt. Gerar will become the place of Isaac's sojourning in the book of Genesis. Now up to this point in time, there has been no indication that life has come to Sarah. God says, I will return to you in the spring, in the time of life, and Sarah will have a son. I mean, she is old. She knows it. She repeats that to herself. She believes her time has passed. There is no indication that there is a new beginning for her until the place called Gerar. She is now living on the edge of the promised land, facing the country that belongs to Pharaoh again. And memories are moving through her mind. Then, yes, then... She was young and now she is old. While she was fully humiliated by Pharaoh, there was one positive part to that whole experience. Pharaoh knew she was beautiful. Pharaoh desired her, even though he was a rotten, ugly king, he desired her because she was beautiful. That part of her that passes with the years, she remembered way back then. Now she is old. Who would want Sarah? For Sarah, the time of life had passed. For Sarah, the way of women was gone. Who would want Sarah at the age of 90? So Sarah comes to the land that means dragged away, and she feels very old, dragged away from God. The woman who thought she was no longer desirable discovers suddenly that she is wrong. You see, Gerar is the place where there is a shift in the story. It is the place where suddenly something happens that doesn't make sense at the age of 90. Who would want Sarah at 90? Look at verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. That's what he said with Pharaoh. Now at the age of 90, he says it again. Why? Because something had happened to Sarah. Between the promise of God and the spring, the wrinkles began to retreat. The face began to rise. The form began to become what it was in years gone by. Sarah couldn't see it, but others around her could see that something was happening. He hid behind a half-truth, Abraham did this second time to save his life, but not his wife. This is the second time Abraham hid behind a half-truth to save his life. At Gerar, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, dragged Sarah away. He took her. God had promised that at the time of life he would return. And just before the spring, Sarah looks young again. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him rather bluntly, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Dead meat, Abimelech. Happy dreams. Now, perhaps this is the basis of the warning in the book of Hebrews because this is serious language here. God is, through a prophetic dream, talking to someone who really shouldn't be a prophet at all and telling him in no uncertain terms, You are toast. You are dead meat. Perhaps this is the basis for the warning, as I've said in Hebrews 13.4. Let's turn to it. Paul says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the immoral and adulterous. God put it plainly, Abimelech, you are a dead man. You took a man's wife, and you know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? You're next. Notice that God did not tell Abimelech that he was dead because Sarah was the chosen one. That's not the reason he gives here. He told Abimelech that he was a dead man because of adultery. Now what happens to the man in the church today who steals another man's wife and thinks nothing of it? 
What happens to a man who will break into a family because of desire and beauty and take the wife of a husband's heart to himself? What happens to that kind of man in the church or out of the church? God told Abimelech plainly, you are a dead man. Predators beware. If you're preying on someone else's wife and you're looking to drag her away, as far as God is concerned, you have taken your first step toward death. You know why I know that? Because my father did that. My father stole another man's wife. And my father developed a terminal illness shortly after. And he had broken health to the day he died at the age of 44. I have a keen sense of the short span of my father. He found Christ. God forgave him. He confessed his sin to my mother, but dear hearts, his health was broken. His life shattered. The course of his future totally redirected because he chose to steal someone else's wife. We'll continue with today's Reaching Your Heart and Pastor Michael Oxentenko in just a moment. If you'd like to attend the worship service, I will have details on how you can do that here at the close of our broadcast today. So please stay tuned. You can always attend online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Many archived messages are available there for you. And you can attend the live service in a streaming format at that website, reachinghearts.org slash video. Thanks for listening to Reaching Your Heart. We will continue now with the winning of Isaac. It is a part of the Genesis series, and it is today's Reaching Your Heart. Saved by grace, but his life cut short. Scientific research indicates that you are much more likely to have a heart attack, that you are more likely to develop heart disease if you are unfaithful to your wife. Cheating kills cheating husbands. Did you hear what I said? If you want to live long and prosper, if you want to grow old, you better grow old together with the person God has brought into your life because when you start cheating on your wife, God has engineered it into your cells and your cardiovascular future for you to die young if you're going to do that. Behold, you are a dead man. Go back home and love the wife God has given you with covenant love. That's what the Bible is trying to say. So God didn't give him some reason like, well, she's the future mother of the Messiah or that kind of thing. He said, no, she's another man's wife. In Abimelech's case, he didn't know that she was Abraham's wife. So in that sense, there's hope here. No doubt this is why the dream came when it did. Look at verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, wilt thou slay an innocent people? In this verse, the kingdom of Abimelech stands in direct contrast to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abimelech here represents the righteous Gentile who lives at peace with Abraham in the promised land. It represents the man who is in the business of trying to discern truth and following it, even though he doesn't have a good revelation of God's will. If necessary, we learn in this story that God will send visions and dreams to non-believers at the end of time to save them if they are willing to do his will. So the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is prophetic of end-time fire, but the faith of Abimelech is prophetic of end-time honest people anywhere in the world who want to be led by God. Look at Joel 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit only on the Christian church. Is that what it's saying? You know, it doesn't say that there, does it? It says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now, what he's saying here is this. The your refers to Israel. 
All flesh refers to humanity. Wherever there is an honest heart seeking God, even if that person is not in the church, he belongs to the church. And so the Bible says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Look at verse 29. Even upon the men servants and maid servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Verse 30, and I will give signs in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. In fact, the word columns there, used is the Hebrew word for palm tree like mushroom clouds of smoke. This is in time language here. We live in the age of mutual assured destruction the age of mushrooms. Verse 31 the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord and it shall come to pass that all who call on the name of the Lord what does it say? Shall be delivered. Dear heart, we have not seen the beginning of prophetic activity at the end of time. There will be thousands of people, I believe, who receive visions and dreams that will direct their feet to God in the final mark of the beast issue at the end of time. And God will pour his spirit out wherever there is an ear that can hear. Abimelech represents the righteous son of Adam who calls on the name of the Lord at the end of time. Now notice here that he even argues with God with a high sense of morality. Look at verse 5. He says, Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. He says, I am not guilty, God, of this thing. Verse 6, then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God is guiding and keeping people who are outside the church, people who don't even know the truths that we have. He says, I have kept you. And that's why this crisis has come into your life. Now in verse 7, God tells Abimelech that Abraham is a prophet and that God would have Abraham pray for him. Think about this. What kind of a prophet is he? Well, he's a misdirected prophet, but nonetheless a prophet. He says, return Sarah and you will live. Keep her and you will die. Not just you, you and your whole family, your nation, everything will die. Sodom was number one, Abimelech. Gomorrah was number two. And you, Abimelech, and your kingdom will be number three if you don't do what I say. Good night, Abimelech. If I were you, I wouldn't sleep too long tonight. Now, how seriously did Abimelech consider God's warning that night? Look at verse 8. It says he rose early in the morning. (laughs) He didn't wait to sleep in that day. No, sir. He got up before the crack of dawn. He got up to anticipate the sun. He gathered his servants together. The chief had a powwow with all the leadership of his kingdom. And he told them the whole story of the dream. And they were afraid to the man. Fear in the assembly of Gerar. Early in the morning, Abimelech's men appear at the door of Abraham's tent. Abraham is sleeping in that day. And they are not happy with Abraham as they pull the tent curtain back. They are not happy with Sarah. They're not happy with the whole thing because Abimelech is not happy. And Abimelech is not happy because God is not happy. There is something wrong here. Verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What were you thinking of that you did this wrong? And notice Abraham's three lame excuses. I mean, these are really bad excuses. Excuse number one, verse 11. 
Abraham said, well, I did this because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. So I lied because you're ungodly, Abimelech. Abraham thought that Abimelech was like the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, but yet here is a righteous man calling him to accountability, and here is a prophet saying, well, I slipped because, well, I live in a sinful environment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reasoned similarly when he argued that Nazis do not deserve the truth because they're evil. He reasoned that if a Nazi asked if there were Jews in your house, he had no right to the truth, so lie. Now, I'm not comfortable with that. I believe God has a way of protecting his people without violating conscience at the same time. Excuse number two, verse 12, Abraham spoke the truth, sort of. She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. Parse my words, Abimelech. She's my half-sister. Excuse number three is the clincher. Abimelech, God made me do it. I'm a theologian too. Verse 13. God made me wander from my father's house. If I had stayed at home, this wouldn't have happened to you or me. God called me and I answered his call. Faithful prophet I am. God placed me in danger and I took measures to protect myself because God made me do it. God's responsible. Abimelech, who can challenge his inscrutable ways? Abimelech is flabbergasted at all this. He just can't believe what he's hearing. I mean, all he wanted to hear was sorry. And he gets that. Without comment or debate about his lame excuses, Abimelech gives Abraham sheep and goats, male and female servants, and then he returns Sarah, his wife. Now the dig comes in verse 16. Notice verse 16. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. He doesn't say I've given your husband anything. I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's as if he's saying, what kind of husband do you have? He can't even bring himself to use the word husband. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is your vindication in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are righted. Well, that does conclude the first portion of the weaning of Isaac. Today's Reaching Your Heart, a part of the Genesis series. Remember, it and many other messages are available online at reachingyourheart.com. And thank you so much for listening today. Again, a reminder, you can visit us at the church for the worship service every Saturday at 11 o'clock. We'd love to have you there. That address is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. Or if you're more comfortable, you're certainly welcome to watch online at reachinghearts.org slash video. reachinghearts.org slash video. The live broadcast will be streaming and available for you on that website, reachinghearts.org slash video. Thanks for listening, and we do pray that God is reaching your heart.